Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from... KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We will wrap up our reflections with chapter 7 this evening, but before we do that, I did want to respond to an interesting question that I had received yesterday, and uh, it is somewhat of a religious question in that it certainly had me thinking about religious things. And the question was this, Joe, would you allow your 11-year-old son to wear an Ezekiel Elliott jersey? An Ezekiel Elliott jersey. I thought, gosh, now that is an interesting question. Uh, For those of you who do not know, Ezekiel Elliott is a running back for the Dallas Cowboys and has recently been suspended for six games because of conduct unbecoming. I have not followed the story too closely other than Clearly, there's a reason why he has been suspended. Whether or not six games is justified, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But the question, as it was asked, got me thinking about what we wear. You know, we are big A's fans in the Holcraft family, so we will wear A's attire. And I do make a point uh, with my son to make sure that he is wearing players' jerseys that represent a character, that represent virtue, because you do want your children, of course, to espouse towards virtue. Um, And in the light of that, when I was asked the question, my simple response was no. You know, uh, nothing against Ezekiel Elliott. Um, He's a young man who needs our prayers. But in the end, (laughs) when I thought about the question, it got me thinking about why not wear the stuff of Jesus Christ? Now, you have heard me talk about the passage from Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul is exhorting the Christians there in the church of Colossia to put on the cloth of Christ, essentially to wear Christ. And there, yes, he is talking about wearing the garment of virtue. But there is also this literal sense that we should consider. And by that, I mean actually wearing clothing that has people thinking about Jesus Christ. There are a lot of stores and outlets out there that have something to do with the Christian faith. And as I was asked the question, it really was a challenge for me to be more proactive in not only what my child wears, but what I wear and what my family wears. Because in so many ways, what we wear can be a tool for evangelization. And by that, I mean, often (laughs) when you are wearing a shirt that communicates your love for Jesus Christ, you will find people asking you about that shirt. I, from time to time, do wear those kinds of shirts. I have a few in my uh, dresser. I can stand to have more. But when I do wear them, people ask me about the faith. It's an opportunity to evangelize. Just as you wear, say, an Ezekiel Elliott jersey, jersey to let people know that you root for the Cowboys, so should we wear clothing that communicates our love for Jesus Christ to let people know the team that we belong to, huh? the team that we root for. How many times does Paul use 
the image of a team? How often does St. Paul use language that communicates that we belong to a team, a team that, as you and I both know, has already claimed victory? So why not put on the cloth of Christ? Figuratively, in the virtues, in the gifts, and in the Beatitudes, but also literally to actually wear clothing that communicates the stuff of Jesus Christ. You know, maybe it's a biblical passage, maybe it's a particular symbol, maybe a fish, maybe a crucifix. Uh, I remember when the Passion of Christ came out, a lot of people were wearing clothing that was tied to the Passion of Christ, especially during Lent and Good Friday. Why not wear more of that? And I'm not saying you're any less of a human being. If you don't, I'm not saying that. But again, it's just more of a reflection for me personally that we wear jerseys of players from our favorite teams to let people know who we root for. And, and that's fine, okay? Although I do think we should take stock in what jerseys we do wear, especially if those persons uh, do not represent what you represent, all the more should we be thinking about uh, wearing the cloth of Christ, literally and figuratively. Okay, so that's just by way of opening monologue, if you will. Let us jump back into chapter 7, verses 13 to 16. Now, we wrapped up with our reflection yesterday evening in verse 13, but there's kind of a 13a, 13b. So I'm going to go ahead and start with chapter 17, verse 13b to 16. And by that, what we intend to mean is basically the second half of verse 13, because it is where the new theme and thought process begins. All right, chapter 7, verses 13b to 16. And besides our encouragement, we rejoice even more because of the joy of Titus, since his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. For if I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. No, just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting put before Titus proved to be the truth. And his heart goes out to you all the more as he remembers the obedience of all of you when you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have confidence in you in every respect. Now it's interesting, just off the top, St. Paul uses the phrase here, with fear and trembling. Well, what is he echoing there? Is he not echoing Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where he talks about how we are called to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, right? This ongoing process of working out our salvation in fear and trembling and doing so as sons and daughters of God. So he, he echoes that verse, I'm sure, intentionally. Now, as it relates to these four verses, Paul informs the Corinthians about Titus's joy occasioned by the reception of him and the letter he bore. He then confides that he had previously boasted to Titus about them, and this boasting has now been what but vindicated, right? And here he concludes by reiterating his own joy and by expressing his complete confidence in the community. So, after restating the encouragement he has received, St. Paul turns the Corinthians' attention to his envoy, to Titus. He rejoices even more because of the joy of Titus. Is that not the very verse? 
So Titus has not only conveyed to Paul the community's favorable response to the tearful letter, he has also expressed his own joy at what has taken place in Corinth. I mean, observe that it is Titus's spirit that has been refreshed. We saw back in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, that the Spirit is the interior place of contact with the Spirit of God. What are we to make of Paul's reference to all, especially in light of the fact the present letter has given several hints that not everyone is fully reconciled with him? To be sure, the vast majority seems to have sided with with their founding apostle, St. Paul. The use of all suggests that Paul wants to accentuate, we could say, the community's positive response to the tearful letter and that he subtly exhorts those who still have doubts about him to come on board with the rest. Remember what we talked about yesterday as it relates to desolation and consolation. Desolation speaks to this solitude, Consolation, when you best translate it, means what? To be side by side with someone, right? To be side by side with someone. If you are in solitude, when you see someone going to be side by side with someone, what do you want to do? You too want to be side by side with who is already side by side. No one enjoys desolation. Everyone enjoys consolation. So again, as I spoke to it yesterday, let us enter into the consolation of Jesus Christ and the community, right? And those who God has put in your presence. What's going on here in the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, in many ways, is going on today. And I don't have to say Chico per se, wherever you call home. Wherever you might be accessing this radio program or podcast, right, you have a community you belong to. We all want to belong to a community. And I think this is, if it is not explicit, at least implicitly being communicated here. Now, what's more, Paul reveals to the Corinthians that prior to sending Titus with the tearful letter, he had boasted to his envoy about them. Uh, This revelation is surprising given what had transpired during his painful visit. You know, at that moment, it might have seemed as if Paul had little to boast about concerning the community, right? But as we saw in our series of reflections back in the opening chapter, specifically verses 12 to 14, the positive sense of boasting refers to what? But that which is accomplished by God's grace— Paul is only going to boast to the extent that he recognizes Jesus Christ doing something in him. He knows what it means to be self-sufficient. And by that I mean to be sufficiently selfless, right? That's what Paul is after. So Paul, in all likelihood, communicated to Titus his confidence in what God had done. And we could say would continue to do especially in and through the Corinthians. And because the community has now responded to Titus's visit with, what did we talk about yesterday? Godly sorrow and a renewed zeal for Paul, the latter can now declare that he was what? Not put to shame. 
So the Corinthians' actions have justified his boasting. The Corinthians would not only be glad to hear about Paul's vindication on their account, they would also be thrilled to learn that he has boasted about them to others. You know, we once again can see the apostles' keen pastoral skills. Can we not? Fascinating. Notice how Paul now takes the occasion to restate a theme that has been prominent since the opening chapter. One of the things that one gains when you study a book verse by verse is how the author, and of course, in this case, St. Paul, develops certain themes. And here (laughs) we have that going on because in chapter 1, verse 18, what was St. Paul talking about? But the veracity of his word. He insists that everything he said to the community was true. And by everything, what do we mean? But his initial proclamation, as well as to all the teaching and pastoral advice he has imparted in his previous visits and letters. And just as his proclamation, teaching, and exhortations have been grounded in the truth, so has his boasting. You see, my friends, St. Paul's confidence comes from his faithfulness. Remember that the word confidence, when you translate the Latin there, confidere, literally means what? But trustfulness, because faithfulness is trustfulness. Faithfulness is about what? Faith. What is the most concrete act and virtue of faith? But trust. So his confidence comes from his abiding trust in Jesus Christ. His abiding faithfulness in Jesus Christ. He says, I know you are going to do this because I know I have faith in the power of your grace. Do we show such faithfulness? Do we show such confidence? You know, I grew up playing a number of different sports, and I can tell you the number one reason why I either failed or succeeded on the baseball field, football field, or basketball court. If I didn't practice, I failed. If I practiced, I succeeded. Why? Because the more I practiced, the more faith I had in what I was doing, the more confidence I had in what I was doing. If I was going to have a game, I would typically shoot for about one and a half to two hours worth of baskets, shots that I would typically, typically take during a game. And guess what? I would go out onto the basketball court. I would have faith in my shot. I would have confidence in my shot, and I would typically make it. But if for one reason or another I didn't get that practice time in, I lacked confidence, and I would miss those shots that I would typically make. You see, my friends, in so many ways, what I'm talking about right now is what lies at the heart of our faith. If you spend more time with God, well, the more confident you will be in what God can do, because you will see it in very concrete ways in your own life. Don't be a person who doesn't pray and then blames God for everything. You have no authority to do that because how could you possibly know how God works? Spend time with God, pray with God, gain insight, and then when you see something going on, have that conversation with God. 
You can have that conversation with God because you're going to recognize His voice. Remember that greatest truth concerning the spiritual life. That God desires, we desire God as much as God desires us. That God meets us how He makes us and walks with us as He is. He meets us where we are so that we might go where He is. Right? This is what the spiritual life is about. And once we come to understand this and enter into it, then we will begin to see how God works in our life. I'm talking about all of this right now because this is what St. Paul was all about. He desired God. He allowed God to accompany him. He allowed God to show him what a life of heaven is all about here on earth. Brothers and sisters, he had confidence in God. And in this way, we are to imitate such confidence. Now, in verses 15 to 16, Paul goes on to highlight Titus's great love for the Corinthians. He reports that his envoy's heart goes out to them. And here, the, the Greek for heart can be best translated as affections, right? So, when Paul is talking about Titus here, he's talking about Titus's affections for the Corinthians. This term refers to the seat of the emotions, especially to compassion and love. So, just as Paul's heart is enlarged with love for the community, so is Titus's heart enlarged with love for the Corinthian community. Now, to what does the Corinthians' obedience refer, and to whom was it rendered? An important clue is given by the phrase that I have already talked about with fear and trembling. In the Old Testament, this phrase signifies the proper human response before God's power and majesty. Paul employs the same phrase as I've already discussed in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. This exhortation follows immediately upon one of the great Christological hymns, if not the single greatest Christological hymn in verses 6 to 11. That hymn which portrays Jesus' obedience unto death. So just as Jesus' obedience was rendered to God, so Paul exhorts the Philippians to obey the one who has a work in them, both to will and to work for his good purpose. Now, let us go back to verse 15. When Titus arrived in Corinth bearing the letter from Paul, the community recognized that they were hearing from God's emissaries, huh? And of course, his ministers. In the end, my friends, the Corinthians responded to God's will for them by allowing their godly sorrow to manifest itself in repentance and renewed zeal for their spiritual father. There is something to be said about having that deep respect for someone who has brought you close to your faith and to see them as St. Paul talks about here as their spiritual father, to be able to turn to them in times of great trial, in times of great suffering. Brothers and sisters, you and I both know that as long as we are vested with the flesh, we will deal with trial. We will deal 
with suffering. We will deal with the kind of thing that St. Paul had to deal with, those hardships and afflictions that he talked about. The question is not so much whether or not we are going to encounter them, but what are we going to do with them? Are we going to allow another person's weakness to dictate how we love? Are we going to allow what someone else does to determine our joy? We have this call before us under spiritual direction and mentorship to come to better understand what Jesus is asking from us, that we might rise above those stormy circumstances in life and do so with the confidence that Jesus Christ is making you more whole in him. There's always going to be room for us to grow. 24-7-365, there's always going to be a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. We are called to live in that gap. And we do so by constantly converting, by going deeper and deeper in Jesus Christ detaching ourselves from things of this world so that we might be more attached to God. And we can only properly understand this if we allow ourselves to be fathered, if we allow ourselves to be guided. Why? Because we all have blind spots, do we not? I mean, you could be heading down the road and and in the right direction and not know that your back right light is out, right? Now, it might not be a big deal for 100 miles, 150 miles, 200 miles, but there's going to come a time where you're going to need that backright light. You need someone to tell you that it's out, okay? Sometimes we need people to tell us that something is off, something is not working right, especially when things get difficult. We need to allow ourselves to be consoled. We need to allow ourselves to be accompanied. We need to allow someone to come to our side, right? Consolation, side by side. And certainly, this is what you have going on in these verses. Now, finally, here in verse 16, this language of I rejoice. I rejoice. Paul once more expresses his great joy in the community. And he concludes by declaring his confidence, there's the word, confidence in them in every respect. Paul's joy and confidence is a result from the Corinthians' response to his sending Titus with the tearful letter. Why does Paul go out of his way to effusively Express his joy and confidence in the Corinthians at this point in the letter, in verse 16. His earlier rehearsal of events back in the opening chapter was an attempt to clear the air, we could say, about recent misunderstandings concerning his change in travel plans and his decision in the aftermath of the painful incident to write a letter instead of returning to them. He then does what? interrupts this account of past events to offer a lengthy discourse that explained his way of being an apostle. Recall that this explanation climaxed in Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to open their hearts to him. Brothers and sisters, he is so joyful and he can hardly contain himself 
because of what we have already talked about. Clearly, there is a reconciliation between the community and himself. Clearly. And this is why he is overjoyed. I'm not going to go back and rehash all of that which we have already talked about concerning forgiveness and reconciliation. But be rest assured, my friends, he is overjoyed because he has been reconciled with his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's something else that has gone on here we should point out. And that's how Paul expressly points out the positive. One of the difficult, I think, challenges in ministry today is to help people live the gospel more radically, which can what? Entail exhorting them to ongoing conversion, calling people to leave behind harmful patterns of behavior is what? Difficult. If we're going to be honest, it is hard, both for the ministers who understandably hesitate to call for correction and for those being challenged. Paul shows that when doing so, it helps to point out what others are doing well. People tend to receive criticism better when their good qualities are also being acknowledged. People are inclined to show more openness to challenge when their present efforts are appreciated. Do we not see this going on in this letter? You know, a glance at Paul's letters certainly reveals that he is adept at pointing out the positive when exhorting others. If you were to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, this is the very thing he's doing. My dear friends, his strategy of pointing out the positive is a good example, just not for ministers, for pastors, but for parents, teachers, and anyone whose responsibility includes calling those under their charge to growth and improvement. And this isn't to water down truth, no. We need to be built up, and it is a necessary good to build up one another. But at the same time, we do need to be challenged. So you're not throwing a pillow, per se, on the challenge. Now, don't go off and affirm something within a person that they don't actually possess. No, because that would be phony. That would be counterfeit. Affirm the goodness you see in the person. And as I've spoken to it before, if they trust you, they're going to be open. St. Paul has something for us to reflect with. And as I say that, that will be our closing reflection. Adhere to just not the wisdom of St. Paul, but also the subtle ways in which he teaches us how to be a better Christian and Catholic. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.